It's like they're just out there. They're going to go and sign with someone new who's going to really actually say, hey, you can work wherever you want to work. We want the best people in our organization. And I think that is going to cause some really interesting change over this upcoming year where we are going to read, unfortunately, a lot of articles about, well, this company X decided that they did not allow any of their employees to be remote. They lost a few of these people. Those people sort of did most of the work that we're talking about in terms of the invisibles. And it's yeah. led to a lot of turmoil and issues. And now so-and-so is stepping down after being there for 25 years to say that he's going to go and do something else. When we really know when we read into it, Ben, they fired that person because they are not transformational. We are going to see more of these people who are transactional basically fired when the results don't come in because they can't rally the morale of a lot of these people. Half of being an executive or being a leader is morale of a company. It has nothing to do with, can you actually do this work? I mean, most people can figure that out. A lot of it is morale. And I think like some places are going to suffer because of the unfortunate changes that they're looking in. I think the companies that actually are trying to meet in the middle and talk with their employees about like, hey, this is what we want to do, will actually do okay. And there are some companies, people, they got, people got permission to move and actually work remote. I don't think they'll renege on that and say, oh, by the way, you got to move back to if you want your job. Right. I think they'll say like, look, you're part of the company. We did what we needed to do. We're retaining you. Flexibility. We hear this a lot, Ben. More employees are asking for flexibility more than money in certain roles, meaning they're actually saying, I don't need the extra fifteen, thirty thousand dollars you want to give me. I'd rather have the flexibility with my work and you can keep the salary. And that's actually caused some companies to have hesitate saying, well, wait a minute, we don't want to give you that flexibility because we're going to have to give that to all of our employees. I don't know if companies really have thought this out. I think many of them had trouble actually transitioning to work from home because they weren't set up for it. And now they're going to have trouble transitioning to this very ambiguous way of working. And I think it could bring out some of the next leaders in management as a result, ones that are really thinking about these things. I mean, in terms of you asked me how I think about things, I mean, I or my nature, it's not transactional whatsoever. I realize we have work we need to do that leads to commerce and leads to results, but it's we don't start the work from, hey, how much money can we make from this as much as what's the best idea? Does it include everyone? Can we get the most out of building off of other people's work? Let's go out and find that. I think if you start from there, your work becomes transactional in the sense that the best ideas ultimately, if you can make those happen, you do make money off of those ideas. It just takes a little bit longer to get there. Welcome to Business Psychology Unplugged. Today, I have a very old friend, football colleague, and much more importantly, head of brand studio at Microsoft Advertising, Jeff Cologne. Welcome. Hey, Ben. Great to uh, be here with you. How do you find the makeup of people in the creative space in terms of backgrounds and how much variety is there? in comparison to perhaps other parts of Microsoft? I think it's sort of world is, you know, your oyster in this space in terms of there's lots of interesting talent out there from all over the world. I mean, you can find creative talent who might go the typical route of how they entered that world. They like design. Maybe they were a visual or graphic design major, you know, at a university. They did something straight out of school that involved that. And then they sort of worked their way into a different area and that you're hiring them to work on Microsoft projects. You could have someone who 
didn't take that traditional route. Maybe they got into the creative world because they were more of a developer or an engineer, but that wasn't really what they wanted to pursue. They realized, hey, I really am more of a creative person, but my parents really wanted me to do engineering. And they open themselves up to a lot of interesting areas just because they think a whole lot differently. And then you have people who never really were in design, but just are very good at synchronizing all these different areas of influence to create something new. And they may have majored in English or philosophy or psychology, but they're just into working in a creative field. And those people make sense. There's not a lot of marketing majors that I necessarily work with in creative fields. I'm not against having people with MBAs. I mean, like we're talking about, Ben, it's good to have a wide diversity of, of influence, but I don't go after the sort of traditional people who may have that in their profile. You're staying away from people that like dressing in suits. Is that what you're saying? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, nobody, I mean, if you can say <laughs> that, yeah. I mean, not, not many of us have really worn a suit the past year, but yeah, I think, you know, if you're really good at spreadsheets, that's important. You need people in your organization to do that. But I don't want that to limit people's creative vision in terms of, well, you know, we don't have the money to necessarily do that. Or mm -hmm. should we be putting the money towards something like that? You want people who are just a lot more open and free thinking in terms mm -hmm. of like, hey, like what's possible here? What could we do? So the kinds of people, sorry to interrupt you, Jeff, but so what you're saying is those three backgrounds that sort of the traditional route to get into branding and to getting into advertising, it sounds like they need to be typically out of the box thinkers or proactive people that are actually creating things and willing to either pull the team together to create something or they're just sort of creative themselves. Or maybe from that technical side that you were suggesting, it sounds like they kind of were in a department Perhaps they started as technical people, but then they sort of shifted across to another side of advertising and branding. Is that what you're saying? Or because it seems to be quite a shift from going the technical route to sort of going into a creative route. Like, you know, those two sound to, to a layman, and I'm a layman in this situation, going from something very technical to something very creative. It seems to be a jump. But are you saying it's quite a comfortable bridge? I am, especially with where the world has been the last. 10 years of the last decade, you're having a lot more technical integration into creative fields. You're also having creative fields creep into technical sides. So it's almost like this sort of new renaissance where you don't want to necessarily ignore those skill functions. I mean, as a lot of people I meet at uh, the university level now will tell me they're dual majors in something. And one of the majors will be something that's very arts driven. And the other one will be something that's very business or I should say technically driven. A lot of computer scientists who are also design majors, a lot of computer scientists who are also philosophy majors. There's lots of integration happening. And we're starting to see that more with present crop of candidates that are out there just because they're infatuated with technology, but they're also infatuated with the creative side. So I think more and more, we won't look at that as like, wow, that's an oddball pairing, especially when we look at history and realize Leonardo da Vinci was really into science, but he was also really into art. And I think there's lots of people like that who want to do both and combine that into some interesting areas. So, But it sounds like what the attraction of those people they have practical skills that are going to be necessary to be effective at a company like Microsoft, but their own passion, their own interest areas could complement that in all sorts of different ways. So that's why seeing someone that's got a dual path for many years, that person may have been told by other people, you know, hey, pick one, pick a lane. What's the job that you can get with that degree? And now what you're basically saying is, Hey, we want more than that. Not that we necessarily need all the credentials in the world, but, but we need someone a bit more interesting because either A, you've got so many applicants, you can be picky, or B, probably more importantly, to fit the kind of culture that you have, you're looking for something a bit more special. Is that what you're well, saying? That's exactly it. I mean, that you said it best right there. It's basically you find 
you can build more interesting solutions, have a more interesting culture, have just a more interesting dynamic when you aren't so picky about, well, as you noted, you got to pick a lane. It's like, oh, hey, Mm -hmm. we're okay with you having a number of different lanes here because you never know how that's going to be utilized to do something that's really, really interesting. And I can say, hey, that's something that we do a lot here at, at Microsoft. I think a lot of companies are moving in that direction, though, too, Ben. And not just even in tech. I think you can even be in other areas, other verticals, and they're looking for mm-hmm. more well-rounded candidates. So let's say you're working in financial services. They may say, hey, it's great you have a financial services background, but we also want candidates who are a little bit more diverse in some areas because, as we know, financial tech services is really different in terms of the products that they're building now. And they want people who think that way. It almost reminds me of applying to college 30 years ago. They wanted well-rounded candidates and they would ask you to show, how are you well-rounded? And then you would say, here's all the things that I'm into. And I think that is really a sort of surfaced in the working world a lot more. In a way, it's kind of like regressing as, because like if initially it was like, maybe less about the education and more about the person. And then we went through this like maybe two decade period where it was all about the specific education you have. And now perhaps this is all correlated with the cost of education, but we're sort of now going beyond that and saying, well, maybe education is not as important. We want this whole person. But I think there's probably some people listening that are in grad school or thinking of going to grad school even that are probably thinking, hold on a second, this guy from Microsoft's telling me that I need to pick a second, uh, you know, (laughs) concentrate. I need to even be more qualified, basically. I got to pick something random. But I think the message is just like, be yourself, pick a subject that you're really passionate about, and maybe have one that's not just liberal arts, but could actually connect to some of the more functional parts of what we do. That's exactly it. So instead of saying, you know, hey, pick something that is 100% functional, It's like pick something functional and then pick something you're also really into, like you said, just because if you're into something, you're more eager to learn and want to sort of master what that subject is. But you're not stuck sort of like, okay, I majored in something that has no practical usage whatsoever. So I, I think that's why we're seeing more dual majors and while we're actually seeing universities structure that where they're making it easier for people to do in four years So that they're not like, oh, hey, if you want to do a dual major, it's going to take you six years to do that. And it's going to cost a lot more. It's more along the lines of, all right, you can do that in four years. In fact, some people I've spoken to are creating like their own major. All right. We want people who might be a little bit more imaginary of of what they want to do with degrees postgraduate in the real world. You know, I think we really could dig into understanding a bit more about the kinds of people that you have to work with within the creative space. Do they fit into categories? I mean, I'm not trying to be too discriminatory, certainly not to any protected group, but from a personality standpoint, the kinds of people that you find entering your space, obviously you can look at them as a whole person, but do you find different sort of groupings of people putting aside education for a second? or experience, but just more of like the kind of personalities that you see within, underneath the brand umbrella? Yeah, I mean, I think nowadays, it's interesting that people are good writers. I think that's the one area that I'm always like, people say like, what hard skill do you want from all of the people who you're looking for? It's like, well, you should really be a good writer. Like you should be able to take all different types of concepts and be able to explain what that is in a sentence or a paragraph, or if you have to put together a larger presentation in terms of how things work, that's where writing begins. I think the other skills people can learn and unlearn and relearn as they go through things, like maybe you don't really have a big editing background, you haven't really worked a lot with audio or video, but how can you learn that, especially with all the user-generated tools that are available to us now. I mean, most people, when they're creating things, Ben, they don't necessarily have access to a lot of tools. They just sort of learn through replication. I mean, if you look at it, almost any video that's on YouTube, a lot of them are someone's like, oh, I sort of learned to edit by just doing it. 
And they may be at any age. That's the other thing. Like, I don't necessarily agree with people who say, well, if you haven't picked up a certain skill by a certain age, you're not going to ever really be able to do that. I think it may get harder for some people because they might say, well, I don't know if I can do this. That's a barrier to learning something. But I think, you know, anyone can do something if they sort of put their mind to it. I mean, the end result might not be as great as we mm-hmm. want it to, but that's the important area. A lot of these things, as you say, you can learn, you can pick them up and people have them different. But I want to think about the types of people themselves, like the writers are often stereotyped as uh, I'm going to upset a few writers here. But are you familiar with the disc temperament? It's, it's kind of gone around the leadership circuit, I'm sure. I am someone, very familiar with it. Yes. Somebody <laughs> probably measured you once yes. on it. And, you know, writers... writers I haven't got enough data on writers' disc results to know this, but typically they're quieter people, but they've got a lot going on in their head. So probably high S temperaments and high C temperaments, because the high C stands for conscientiousness, detail orientation, and obviously precision and and private and reserved and just want to kind of do a really good job and, and be left to their own in a room, kind of beavering away on the typewriter, so to speak. Perhaps I'm stereotyping in a a negative way, I don't know. But does that kind of fit the mold? Or do you get people sort of all differences in terms of personality? I think we get lots of different types of people. I looked at everyone that we had. I mean, there's not really anyone who is similar. I think you said it sort of well. And, you know, it is sort of a stereotype that I laugh at. We do have a lot of introverted creative types. I mean, they do live in their head. But I think that's because they eventually get the creative ideas you really, really want. They might be in many meetings. They don't say really much at all. Even if you call on them directly, they might say, yeah, I'm still, let me think about it. That might be their, that might always (laughs) be their answer. And then they come back later and they're like, they present something. You're like, this is brilliant. Uh How come you didn't say anything in the meeting? You realize that they need time to get all of those ideas together. They don't think on the fly. There are other people, though, that are in the group that'll just come up right away with an idea. And that's okay, too, because those are the people that actually help start the ideas that the other people stew on. And then you sort of get the best of both worlds. I think one of the things that orgs want to not have or sort of move away from is what has existed in the past, especially at a company like Microsoft, where you had a lot of extrovert I would say if I use the color red to suggest more authoritarian, that's not good to have throughout your entire org because it's just a lot of people saying, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. You don't have a lot of introverted, what I call green types. They're more like the type to say, all right, let's see if we can actually make that possible. How do we actually execute that? What would it look like? What's the timeline? Like there's a lot of details in modern work and modern life. You need well-adjusted, very interesting organizations filled with lots of people because otherwise you'll just always have, well, we have a lot of ideas, but we absolutely have no execution. I like to say it's good to have introverts and what I call invisibles. Those are the people that don't talk a lot. They may not say much, but if you remove them from your organization, it would not function anymore because they're the invisible people that actually really push the boundaries on everything. We don't like to promote those people into managerial. Right. For, I don't know why. They become the specialists, right? They're not the people leaders. That's they're right. the people That's that right. are experts in their areas, right? That's like right. They haven't made right. a name for themselves by facilitating the conversation and helping the conversation get started like the way you're describing the big idea people that come out with half-baked ideas but essentially get the ball rolling they're what we would call in the disc world the high influences yep. the high eye temperaments yep. Yep. and the people that are looking to show people above that they're decision makers they can push the point the red people that you're describing i would call those the high drive people yep. and the people that are sort of quiet They want to do their homework. They don't want to just come out with an idea because they haven't really researched it. They haven't explored all the options, right? They haven't done their full analysis. So those people, the sort of low I temperaments, high C temperaments, 
that you can't put them on the spot Mm-mm. because you put them on the spot. That's like saying, hey, look, don't you know, if this is an open book exam, but don't look at your book. Here's a question. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And it's interesting because you don't, you know, there's no absolutes necessarily in these orgs, as we've noted. You could be a combination of some of those, meaning you could be a little bit red and a little bit green and a little bit, of, you know what I mean? But you're dominant in one area. So it's really good to get a mixture of different people in your organization. We talk about risk analysis and risk management. It's funny that organizations may bring that up, but then they pile their orgs with like people where it's like, oh my goodness, you want to talk about risk management, yet you have all these one, all these people that are of one type in your org. Right. And they're all making impulsive decisions, let's say. That's not necessarily risk management. So I think the modern workplace and and where things have been moving, especially in the creative areas, it's good to have actually load it up with lots of different people. Make sure you give space for everyone's observations and feedback and don't necessarily allow one type of person to control the conversation, but just allow for fluidity. There used to be a time where management training would take place and all these people would be put into a room and they're doing these exercises and, and they're being told that it's about team building. It's about, it's about something else. But like the psychologists behind the mirror, so to speak, <laughs> they're all looking to see who takes the lead, who sort of directs everybody. And I think somewhere along the line, there were some high drive or red temperaments out there and some high eye temperaments out there. And they basically realize, okay, if I boss people around, you know, that that will make me look like a leader. And then of course, you know, these are like assessment centers. And then of course, you know, that ended up with just way too many high drive people or red people at the top of the chain. And I think also because those are the people that are so results focused that they will tread on people if they have to, or they will pull people, drag people toward their goals and and their results. And I think I was really interested to ask you, like, does that work with creative people? Because I mean, it, it doesn't really work with everybody anyway. And of course, there are certain negative effects on culture when you have that. How do you motivate? It's a difficult question because I always you say to the managers, you don't motivate people. You find out what motivates them and you, and you give it to them. But in the creative world, what works best with such uh, a variety of people working underneath you? I think you bring up a good point. Like, you know, creative people aren't necessarily motivated by all the things that we look at when we read a number of articles around how to motivate your employees. One thing that I think is interesting in the creative realm is people want to be more autonomous. They want to feel like they have a stake in what they're doing, meaning you could come to them and say, okay, we're going to give you all these things that you didn't ask for, but you're going to have to do everything that we tell you to do. A lot of creatives will just be like, I'm going to go find something else. Because to them, Ben, it's not about... And when I say autonomy, I think what people forget is they think people are just want to work, do their own thing and not have to answer to authority. No, that's not it at all. What it really comes down to is someone might say, here's a problem. What's the solution? A creative person's like, give me time to go figure out what the solutions might be. I'll come back to you with a number of different possibilities. If you say, here's the problem, I need it fixed this way, then come up with the solution, you're already sort of hindering what the approach might be. And that is something that a lot of, you know, and when I say creatives, it doesn't even have to be in the visual realm. You know, you have creative people in a lot of different areas. I mean, I've met people in technical areas who are very creative, who are just like, Yeah, they wanted everything done by the book. That's just not how we get the best results. They go elsewhere where they can. Let's use that to pivot. So there's a couple of questions I wanted to ask you about how the world of work is going to be changing. I think this has a lot in common with talking about the talent in your team and and the makeup of different types of people in, in your department. When you think about introverts, for example, right, my guess is that working remotely has been kind of a big deal for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to like put them all under one bus here, but I think there's a lot of extroverts out there in the world kind of looking forward to getting back to the office and perhaps some introverts are a little bit more comfortable where they are. So I suppose your thoughts on that 
at Microsoft would be appreciated. And also, like, what's your view of the remote work and hybrid space look like in your area and in the industry as a whole? Well, let's start with the biggest issue when people think about work is they think in absolutes. This is a, a problem that I think you see in, in almost every organization. And the absolutes are, hey, everyone needs to be back in the office and they need to be here five days a week from eight to five. Or it's, hey, everybody, it's a free fall and you can work from anywhere. There's not a lot of nuance, Ben. The best things in life, usually, they're somewhere in the middle because they're borrowing from maybe the extremes and sort of saying, okay, here's what we've developed. I think the interesting thing is a lot of the team that I work with has been remote in some capacity long before the pandemic. Many of them sort of ran their own calendar. Hey, I have work that is due and it's due on this date. I'm actually going to work remote so I can focus a little bit more. I can do deep work. And if I am joining any meetings, I'll join them using a certain type of remote technology, which most of us have available to us now. So a lot of people have been working like this for a long period of time. Even another position I like to look at when people say like, okay, how do creatives sort of fit into this remote environment? It's like, well, look at how salespeople operate. Most of them are remote. They go and they talk to clients. They're doing phone calls. They're rarely in a centralized office. If they're in that office, it's to basically say, hey, I'm here because I want FaceTime with my other team members so we can talk about some things that we don't want to necessarily do remotely. But a lot of other things are handled in a remote mechanism. I personally think where most creative roles are moving, it's probably going to be a hybrid role where one or two days out of the week, you are in an office to bounce ideas off of each other. There is nothing that creative people love more than bouncing ideas off of each other. My sort of colleague that I bounce most of my ideas off of, the reason why I enjoy seeing her when I do see her is because we actually can get a lot done in face-to-face bouncing ideas off of each other. But when we go away and we're remote from one another, that's when we take all the ideas we've bounced and actually then say, What can we actually build this into before coming back into a group setting and presenting it for feedback? So again, it's context of what a role is. If we expect people to be creative at a desk, loud office, five days a week, (laughs) you're not going to get the best work out of those people. That being said, if they are also remote five days a week, there's no way for them to bounce ideas off of one another to sort of see like where they want to go. And so I think it's going to be instead of like a work from home Fridays culture, we may have more of a like a work from work on Wednesday office culture. That means like, hey, I'd love everybody on the team to try to be in the office if possible on this given day of the week, because we're going to have our team meeting. We're going to talk about different things that we have on the calendar that we need to sort of address. We're going to talk about things that may allow us to have one-to-ones with each other that allow us to connect as human beings. I mean, as you know, Ben, it's not just the work. It's also about like the people at an organization. Most of my conversations with team members have nothing to do with the work. It's their personal lives. It's their kids. It's like all the stuff that they're doing, you know, that it's problems they may have. It's human stuff. It almost reminds me of 20 years ago, I had a friend who became a teacher And he said, I love teaching. It's nothing about the teaching, though. And I said, what do you mean? He said, it's about my relations with my students. They come to me when they have issues at home. They come to me when they have problems they need to address. It's not about teaching them history or science or math. That's important. It's relating to them as people. And school systems did not like teachers who did that because it's like, well, wait a minute, you're humanizing this. You shouldn't do that. You should just teach to what the... Or just give them the material. Give them the that's material. That's what you're hired for. Just, and that's what you're hired for. And I think that's what the world of work has been like for a long time. And I think the pandemic has opened up the fact that that's not how work it really is. It's really a function of do you relate with other people and can you relate to them as a human? So creatives actually will help lead 
this area of normalization more than like the technical people at in society. And, and this is interesting because people are always like, what do you mean by that, Jeff? Creatives are probably going to be the ones to say, hey, here's what the world of work will look like. Here's how we're going to communicate with each other. Here's how to feel more human. Here's how to address mental wellness issues. Your IT person's not going to do that. They're going to just say, hey, here's the technology that will allow you to function remote. But it's really going to be creatives that I think get us back to sort of like what this next stage is going to look like. And I think the more we can address that, the more interesting work going to look like moving forward rather than trying to go back to the past like nothing happened for the last year. I think creative people have always been pioneers of the alternatives. Whenever I think of go to any major city and you find the worst neighborhood and you're going to find artistic, creative people like eventually popping up into that neighborhood and eventually the neighborhood starts to change, right? And it's because people that are creative, they're obviously looking for low cost to get started in, in many of these ways, but also they sort of form together their own little club. And I think where this comes out in terms of organizational change is that you've got a real problem that the business world needs to solve. And this problem, they're looking to different sources within the organization and within the industry for like, who should we follow? And so on one level, it's like, let's just look at the biggest companies. Let's look what they do. And I'm sure you've had people contact you about that, about what does, what does Microsoft do, right? And we can talk about that. But also like we're saying, oh, who are the people in our organization that think differently and that can come up with some solutions? And so you've got kind of a tug of war, perhaps, between the old school leadership, which ultimately will probably like to keep things the way it is, because that's how they've run things. And I'm not specifically talking about Microsoft leadership, but people that have been in running things, they probably want things to normalize. And then you've got the creative people that are constantly coming up with new ideas and new ways of doing things. And so my guess is that they will be highly influential during this period, but there might be a bit of tension between their ideas and the way it's always been. And I'm just wondering if that tension, you know, hopefully it's a healthy tension, but do you think that exists? I think that tension exists. I also do think that is a healthy tension because if you think about how you get the most creative ideas, what people have a tendency of not looking at then is there is creative tension. So think about this for a second. The reason why shows on TV where you were giving people like food shows on Bravo, where they say, okay, you have 30 minutes to complete this. The reason why those are very creative is because there's tension involved. You have a clock. It's like, hey, I have 30 minutes to put together this entire recipe with only these ingredients and I have to present it to everyone. That's why Top Chef is that way. That's why Project Runway is that way. They're timed because you get creative tension. The reason why when you talk to most people who are creative, the things come in at the last minute is because of the tension involved in what's necessary. So a lot of people think, oh, creative people are just all over the place. They're not organized. They don't know what they're doing. They're sort of, as we talked about earlier, they have all these ideas floating around in their head and they can't sort of communicate what those are. I think a lot of it is that the tension leads to the best ideas. Oh, wait a minute. We have to get this done by next Thursday. All right, let's think about a couple of things. A week goes by and Wednesday, right before it's due, the best ideas are presented because you have that creative tension. That tension is important in terms of the question you asked on the world of work. Like, I think it is actually healthy to debate and have people who will say, I think we should go back to five days a week, but also have people pressing them to say, well, wait a minute, this past year, everyone has shown that we can function. In fact, some businesses have done better than ever. Why would you like to actually destroy morale and go back to the way that we were operating before? Don't you think that'll be bad for morale? That will lead, hopefully, to a healthy discussion on, hey, maybe you're right. Maybe we need to figure out what that in-between is that exists for some of these organizations. And there's no right answer. I mean, everything is going to really be based on the context of how businesses operate. I mean, some businesses have required people to be on site and in person the past year. We can't forget about that. But some roles right. should be looked at and say, 
does this person need to be here five days a week? I think they have done a really good job remotely or working from home. Let's give them flexibility there. That I think will actually get a lot of people when their manager comes to them and says, hey, you have flexibility moving forward. Oh, great. I'm going to stay with this organization because you're giving me flexibility. That allows me to go do things during work hours that I've done this past year that if I go back into a work environment, I got to figure out how I'm going to do that. Because I, what's happened is schedules have opened up a lot more, Ben. And that is actually, I think, led to a more creative environment. I think if we go back to everybody at work five days a week and you're basically punching a clock, you're just going to have a lot of people trying to figure out like, hey, how do I escape this so I can go do a lot of things that I have to do to sort of create a semblance of balance? It does kind of tap into the job itself being the most important criteria before deciding should this person work remotely? What is the job that they have to do? What are the tasks they have to do? And are those tasks going to be optimized being in an office for five days a week? Or are they in fact going to be negative? And I think what's happening now as a result of all of this time people have had to work from home or to work from wherever they've wanted to work, it's now it's sort of shone a light on how unproductive people probably were at work because (laughs) you know it's like well it's much easier for me to be creative at home or like you know i'm more creative at between 10 o'clock at night and three in the morning where and i'm sure there's programmers all over the world that would relate to that in terms of when they like to do their best work sometimes you just need that really quiet space and a certain time of day and no distractions how can you put people who are creative into a cubicle and ask them to be as, I guess, as free thinking as when they're outside of that environment. Yeah, it's. I think it's fairly, I think it's hard. I think a lot of roles were never really were set up for human capacity empowerment whatsoever. They were set up for the company. Like, hey, this is our, the space we have. We need people here. And also think about it, Ben, like a lot of things were set up around sort of the manufacturing culture, which... You could be an organization in the 1990s running an office where you're almost doing all your work, where you're talking on the phone to someone and you're like, why are we all in the same room together doing this? Oh, I guess we're in the same room because we have a phone that is connected to the office that the company pays for. But if you look at evolution, now you have infrastructure that can exist sort of everywhere, even with virtual partner networks, basically being able to connect to your company's server without having to necessarily be on site and hardwire in. I mean, we need Mm -hmm. to rethink these things in terms of looking at everyone's roles and saying, okay, look, a lot of these roles, they are very team. They are around a team. How do we keep that semblance of activity, but also allow people to basically run with autonomy when necessary so they can actually get what they need? It's sort of massively changing the world right now is that there are going to be some corporate cultures that really struggle with remote working. The types that I'm thinking about, and there's research behind this, that very transactional leadership where I tell you what to do, you do it. If I want you to jump higher, I'll pay you more. They're not really necessarily expecting all of the engagement to come from just loving working. They're expecting it because they're paying for it. And it's a little bit more hard, I guess, more command and control, more hierarchical. And the leadership style that that creates is one of a little bit of fear, a little, a little bit of pressure, and but pressure in a, perhaps a negative way, maybe intimidation. I'm not trying to make corporations to be dark and dingy places, but those types of organizations did well with managers walking around and making sure people were doing what they were doing. Oh, yeah. And so now we went into a remote environment. Now we're coming out of it in a way and staying in it in many other ways. And those managers kind of lost their abilities. And so I think a lot of corporations struggled, not just because they didn't have that organizational intelligence and all the great ideas from meeting, because that's obviously going to come back. But a lot of managers struggled because they're not like transformative managers, they're transactional managers. So I wanted to ask you, how do you think those organizations are going to cope? We're going to stay in this remote world. And what style of leadership do you use? And does that work in this remote world? I mean, 
I think things will continue to be transactional, whether we want them to change or not. That's just the nature of some companies. It's like, hey, we build these products and services. We sell them. We take people's money. We ship it to them. We need people who can just do this type of work and not ask a lot of questions. However, more and more, we are moving toward what are the best what are the best sort of interesting ideas that we can get so that we can build really interesting things because there are other people out there who are going to just build those and continue to transform our businesses whether we want them to or not i mean that was one of the big theses in the book that i wrote 5 years ago like whether you want to have your business disrupted or not someone is going to come along and always try to find a better solution. So, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that like there's disruption happening every single day. That's probably not the case. Things move a lot slower, but someone's going to try to find a better way of doing whatever it is that you do that brings the cost down and allows them to make more revenue in these areas and like there's hundreds of examples of that in business culture where we've been able to see that what worries me is by staying in sort of a transactional nature most of those companies will do well in the short run i just don't know if they'll do very very well in the long run like for example i've heard from three now four people this week that they are not allowed to work remote moving forward when they open their offices and some of those people have just said I quit these are really good people who would be any company would be fortunate to have them and they've just basically put themselves on the free market like the company can't even get a to bring soccer into it they can't even get a transfer fee from these people it's like they're just out there they're going to go and sign with someone new who's going to really actually say hey you can work wherever you want to work we want the best people in our organization and i think that is going to cause some really interesting change over this upcoming year where we are going to read unfortunately a lot of articles about well this company x decided that they did not allow any of their employees to be remote they lost a few of these people those people sort of did most of the work that we're talking about in terms of the invisibles and it's yeah. led to a lot of turmoil and issues and now so and so is stepping down after being there for 25 years to say that he's going to go and do something else when we really know when we read into it Ben they fired that person because they are not transformational we are going to see more of these people who are transactional basically fired when the results don't come in because they can't rally the morale of a lot of these people half of being an executive or being a leader is morale of a company it has nothing to do with can you actually do this work i mean most people can figure that out a lot of it is morale and i think like some places are going to suffer because of the unfortunate changes that they're looking in i think the companies that actually are trying to meet in the middle and talk with their employees about like hey this is what we want to do will actually do okay and there are some companies people they got people got permission to move and actually work remote i don't think they'll renege on that and say oh by the way you got to move back to if you want your job right. i think they'll say like look you're part of the company we did what we needed to do we're retaining you flexibility we hear this a lot then more employees are asking for flexibility more than money in certain roles meaning they're actually saying I don't need the extra 15, 30,000 you want to give me. I'd rather have the flexibility with my work and you can keep the salary. And that's actually caused some companies to have hesitate saying, "Well, wait a minute. We don't want to give you that flexibility because we're going to have to give that to all of our employees." I don't know if companies really have thought this out. I think many of them had trouble actually transitioning to work from home because they weren't set up for it and now they're going to have trouble transitioning to this very ambiguous way of working. and i think you could bring out some of the next leaders in management as a result ones that are really thinking about these things i mean in terms of you ask me how i think about things i mean i or my nature it's not transactional whatsoever i realize we have work we need to do that leads to commerce and leads to results but it's we don't start the work from hey how much money can we make from this as much as 
What's the best idea? Does it include everyone? Can we get the most out of building off of other people's work? Let's go out and find that. I think if you start from there, your work becomes transactional in the sense that the best ideas ultimately, if you can make those happen, you do make money off of those ideas. It just takes a little bit longer to get there. I mean, it kind of sounds like your whole creative industry, this whole pandemic, in a way, has kind of like given you a whole new lease of life in all different directions, because some of the things you're describing, yes, it was probably happening to some extent before the pandemic, but now you've got the whole company starting to think outside the box. You've got the whole company starting to work in remote space. So it does sound like the wings have been kind of cut off. I suppose the shackles have been cut off a little bit. And perhaps people feel a little bit freer to try new things. I don't know. Maybe I'm going down. No, I think that is exactly it. I think there has been more this past year on throw the old playbook out. Let's figure out Mm -hmm. how to do things. I think a lot of people have brought up in meetings, look, that worked. You know, when we were all in an office, that doesn't necessarily work when we're in different locations. Let's stop trying to run things like, we're a a normal office. I think once you can admit that things are different and that the world has changed, you can adapt to that a lot better rather than trying to sort of hold on to the philosophy that things are going to go back to the way they were Mm pre-pandemic. I personally think things changed after most people were home for 90 days this past year because it Mm -hmm. takes about 60 days to build new habits. I mean, Most of us have been working from home for 15, 14 or 15 months. That's way longer than 60 days. That's another area that I think companies should recognize as well as most people have built new habits already. So what you're going to ask them to do is build new habits again by reverting back to old habits that a lot of them aren't really comfortable with having in the first place because they realize how beneficial it's been to not have to commute, to not have to sit on New Jersey transit for four hours as it breaks down, to not be in an open floor plan that everybody sneezes on you, you get the flu, to have to have a pair of headphones so you can cover up all the noise, to be distracted constantly, to be asked tons of questions that you can't really answer because you have to answer them on the spot. You can't do deep work. I think for creative people, this has been the most interesting year because they have been able to go deep Most of the feedback I've gotten from creatives has basically been what I am missing, though, is bouncing those ideas off people and actually being with people to bounce those ideas off of. A Zoom call doesn't necessarily replace that sort of feeling of camaraderie when you're around others in a similar situation. But even there, Ben, I think people have adapted quite well and have done what's necessary to put the work out that they need to do. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, if technology was, and it's pretty good right now, and I'm sure Microsoft Teams does a good job at connecting people virtually, but there's obviously things that are missing because number one, you can't talk over each other as easily, which I guess is a good thing to stop people like myself interrupting. But it's also, there is some weird energy that happens when people are together in a room. In our field, in the business psych world, we call it organizational intelligence where one person says something, another person kind of finishes their sentence or essentially learns something as a result of that connection. So essentially, if we come into a room together and we come out with something new as a result, then we've generated some kind of organizational intelligence. And I think that from talking to executives over the past year, that's been the one thing that they felt just didn't happen as much. The idea generation that you're describing that your team, when they get together, they can really populate and brainstorm. I think the reality is that's a small percentage of their job, but it's a very important part of their job. So as long as we're connecting for those important face-to-face things, the rest of it can be done remotely. So I guess what I'm wondering is, there are going to be a lot of dinosaur companies out there. (laughs) Because like, think about this for a second. If you think that the people that run the companies make all the decisions, it basically assumes that the people that work at the company are grateful and that there's no other opportunities out there for them to have. And so therefore, they have to do what they're told. And if the uh, top 100 companies, if the biggest 100 companies in the US got together and all the CEOs said, this is what we're going to do, then maybe could be contained to coming back to the office. But that's obviously not happening. 
And so I kind of wonder if there's going to be a tug of war between the decisions of the top and sort of the masses of the market and the market forces. Yeah, there's definitely going to be a battle there. We already see that. I think there's more workers realize they have it's more of a worker's economy right now. Like, I think it would be different then if the job market was not good. I think people would just do whatever is necessary and say, I'm going to go. I'm going to just go work. I'm going to do whatever work tells me to do. I think what's happening, though, is the job market is not tight in some geographies, and it's allowed people to say, well, I'm not going to necessarily listen to what you have to say. And guess what? I don't have to worry about geolocation because it's not a matter of me working where I am. I can work now from companies that have gotten smarter and said, we're going to basically hire where the location is not important to us. We're going to hire the best people available. That has opened up the job market to a number of people. I mean, if you look at any amount of job listings that are out there, a lot of them say this is remote work. We're going to hire people and we're not going to require them to relocate. Isn't that going to be a problem when you want them to get into a room? I think that is going to be a problem in some organizations when they do realize, hey, wait a minute, we do need sort of a hybrid setting. I think for some of these roles, they're going to look the other way for the time being, just so that they can get the best people for them. I think in terms of management and where we see things, I think it benefits people who might be in more senior roles. If you're more in a junior role, they might say you need to be on location. So there may be a bias there in terms of, hey, senior roles, we're going to hire from whatever junior, we're going to really hire from a talent pool and require them to be on site. So I do think there's going to be things that will happen there that we're going to be afraid to talk about in terms of how there's biases that do exist there. But I do feel like there's some people are talking a little bit more about like, hey, I'm going to sort of stand on my own two feet and demand a couple of things. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. But if you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star review, or just tell your friends about it. Until next time, this is Business Psychology Unplugged.